This is a struggle that falls into a general indifference. Calabria is a region that welcomes people. Last year we welcomed 18,000 migrants, but we can't be abandoned by Europe. This type of tragedy should have been avoided the day before it happened and not lived out how we're living it today and how we'll live it again tomorrow. Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank have set fire to Palestinian houses, shops and vehicles, killing one Palestinian man after two Israelis were earlier shot dead in the same place. The violence took place in the village of Huwara, just south of Nablus. This latest West Bank unrest comes shortly after a rare meeting between Israeli and Palestinian security chiefs in Jordan. The BBC's Yolanda Nell has more details. It's remarkable that after almost a decade without direct peace talks, the two sides said in a statement that they'd work towards a just and lasting peace, with anxieties high about an escalation in the Islamic holy month of Ramadan, which begins in late March. Israel made a commitment to stop discussing new settlement building for four months. In return, it's understood that the Palestinians will not take action against Israel at the UN. No details were given about what would be done to prevent further violence. India's federal police have arrested the deputy chief minister of Delhi for alleged corruption. The arrest of Manish Sisodia is in connection with irregularities in the implementation of a liquor policy in the city. Mr. Sisodia and his Aam Admi party, which emerged from an anti-corruption movement, denied the allegations. The BBC's Narish Kaushik reports. The BJP and the agencies say they have evidence Mr. Sisodia has been involved in corruption as the minister in charge of bringing a new liquor policy for Delhi in 2021. Under the policy, hundreds of new alcohol shops were opened in the city, which were allowed to serve customers until 3 a.m. But Mr. Sisodia later abandoned the policy after police began investigating allegations of irregularities, including the payment of bribes. That's the news from RTHK. Cheers, dummy. Well, a very good morning to you. It's Monday the 27th of February, and this is James Ross. As we start a newly extended Money Talk, uh, we'll be with you until 9, and then Back Chat will be on between 9 and 10 o'clock. In the headlines this morning, Wall Street saw its biggest weekly drop this year after sharp losses on Friday as investors braced for more rate hikes from the Fed as new U.S. economic data fed fears that inflation is not yet under control. At the same time, the record-breaking global bond market rally since the start of this year seems to have fizzled out. Uh, Warren Buffett says he's lost none of his enduring confidence in the U.S. economy and his company Berkshire Hathaway. Elsewhere, the EU has agreed to impose new sanctions on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, China Renaissance Holdings has now confirmed that its missing chairman, Bao Fan, is assisting Chinese investigators. Uh, starting today in Macau, masks will no longer be required outdoors, likely a big boost to its tourism and gaming industry. On today's show, uh, we'll be joined by Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director, Outset Capital, and Le Shah, Chief Asia Economist at BBVA Research. Uh, with a view from mainland China will be Ben Cavender, Managing Director of China Market Research Group. 
Plus, taking a look at your money, uh, Carolyn Wright will be joined by financial education consultant David Kneebone to address handling one of those important conversations in life. When should you start teaching your kids about money? Uh, don't forget, if you have any questions for our guests, you can email us at moneytalk at rthk.hk uh, or via our Facebook page, which is Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. So yes, over the weekend, billionaire investor Warren Buffett signaled he's lost none of his enduring confidence in the U.S. economy and his company Berkshire Hathaway. In his annual letter to shareholders, he urged investors to focus on the big picture over the long term rather than higher inflation and other factors that in 2022 dampened stock prices, though not Berkshire's. Uh, the EU has agreed to impose those new sanctions on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine, targeting more those accused of supporting the war, spreading propaganda or supplying drones, as well as restricting trade on products that could be used by the armed forces. Uh, transactions uh, with some of Russia's largest banks are also to be prohibited. Last week, China issued a 12-point peace proposal to Russia and Ukraine calling for a ceasefire and the opening of peace talks. That is part of the plans to put an end to the conflict. Earlier, Vicky Wong asked our U.S. economics correspondent, Barry Wood, uh, how U.S. President Joe Biden reacted to the proposal, as well as getting his thoughts on why Wall Street had had such a bad close to last week. He's rejected it, and his people are rejecting it, and the Europeans are rejecting it. They're saying that the only positive thing in this 12-point plan is that um, they mention that... Uh, there should be a ceasefire and that the that Russia invaded Ukraine. But somehow this business of unilateral san sanctions can't solve the problem. That's what the Chinese statement says in this 12-point plan. Unilateral sanctions can't solve the problem. Well, the Americans and the Europeans have been laying on heavy sanctions since the beginning of 2022 when this war began in February, and they tightened them. So there's a fundamental disagreement. I think the significant thing is, Vicky, that the Ukrainian leader says he'd like to talk to the Chinese leader. That's a sign that maybe there's some movement. I think the uh, Chinese have to be applauded for at least putting forward some ideas. Now let's turn to the markets. Uh, stocks last week closed out their worst week since early December. Were they reacting to the latest inflation data, which came in higher than expected? Well, I suppose they were, Vicky, but I think the reality is we had a nice rally in January. Everyone thought, well, the Fed is nearly done raising interest rates. Now the sentiment is shifted to say, oh, my goodness, we're going to get another 25 basis point increase in March and maybe one more after that. And so that has tempered sentiment. I think you're right. There is something about the inflation figures, but the inflation trend is downward. The interest rate trend is still upward. And uh, just briefly, what do you expect from earnings reports from major retailers this week? They could be mixed. They could be good. I don't think they're going to be bad. The reality is that the economy is doing far better than expected, but the big companies, that includes Walmart, Lowe's, um, Home Depot, They've all been saying that the rest of the year, after the first quarter of this year, looks less rosy. 
So I think that um, probably the earnings this week should be good. We might see a bounce back in the market because we had kind of heavy sell-off. The dollar has been very strong. But um, there's a bit of pessimism that's setting in towards events in the last part of this year. Barry Wood, uh, RTHK's international economics correspondent in Washington. Uh, China Renaissance Holdings has confirmed that Chairman Bao Fan is assisting Chinese investigators. So says the company in a stock exchange filing yesterday after the banker disappeared earlier this month. Quote, the company has been trying to locate Mr. Bao and ascertain his status. The board has become aware that Mr. Bao is currently cooperating in an investigation being carried out by certain authorities in the People's Republic of China. Well, starting today in Macau, masks will no longer be required outdoors, while most indoor venues will have discretion over whether to require masks, although masks will still be required on public transport. Uh, easing COVID concerns have led many places, including Taiwan and Singapore, to ease mask mandates as part of efforts to reopen their economies and attract tourists. During the pandemic, Macau's economy has been hammered by outbreaks and lockdowns in China, its biggest source of visitors. China's official manufacturing data for the month of February is due Wednesday this week. A manufacturing activity had appeared to be picking up during the month of January. And Katrina L., senior economist at Moody's Analytics in Sydney, sees more upside ahead. We are expecting to see the good news continue into February. And we're expecting that the manufacturing PMI will come in at 51.3 in February. So it's a decent improvement from that around 50 reading that we got in January. And what's gonna be uh, really interesting to watch is that we should see that the indicators that focus on domestic activity in China see particular pickup as we're seeing the, the activity ramp up in manufacturing and more broadly across the economy as a result of the government's pivot away from their, their zero COVID policy. Financial Services Minister Christopher Hoy said yesterday that high-tech firms would soon be allowed to list in Hong Kong before they generate revenue or reach profitability. Mr Hoy told Commercial Radio that the stock exchange is rolling out a new arrangement next month to make that happen, easing profitability requirements. He said authorities hoped the change would attract firms in industries such as new energy. Well, let's have a quick look at the markets and following on from Barry's comments, starting on Wall Street. It posted its biggest weekly drop this year after sharp losses on Friday as investors braced for more rate hikes from the Fed as U.S. economic data pointed to resilient consumers. The Dow fell as much as 3% during the session, its biggest weekly drop since September. It was also the Dow's fourth straight weekly decline, its longest losing streak for nearly 10 months. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq Composite were also down by as much as 2.7% and 3.3% respectively. At the close, though, the Dow down 1% at 32,817. The S&P 500 down 1% at 3,970. And the Nasdaq down 1.7% at 11,395. Uh, the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, the Fed's preferred inflation gauge, shot up 0.6% last month, that after gaining just 0.2% in December. A consumer spending, which accounts for more than two-thirds of U.S. economic activity, jumped one8 8% last month, exceeding forecasts for a 1.3% rise. Uh, Tesla, Amazon and NVIDIA saw slides of between 1.6 and 2.6% as Treasury yields rose. 
European markets moved from gains to losses on Friday. The pan-European stock 600 down 1% at 457.70. Travel and leisure stocks led losses. Uh, the FTSE 100 down four tenths of 1% to 7,878. The DAX 30 in Frankfurt down 1.7% at 15,209. The CAC 40 in Paris down 1.8% at 7,187. Hong Kong stocks closed with another steep loss on Friday as traders brushed off Thursday's Wall Street rally and concentrated on the likelihood of more U.S. interest rate hikes. The Hang Seng down 1.7% to 20,010. The Shanghai Composite down 0.6%. The Shenzhen Composite down 0.7%. Uh, Japanese stocks higher on Friday as gains in steel, mining and food sectors led shares up. The Nikkei 225 up 1.29%. In commodities, Russia has halted supplies of oil to Poland via the Druze Bar pipeline. Uh, so says Polish refiner PKN Orlen, adding they would tap other sources to plug the gap. Uh, Brent crude currently up 1.1% at $83.16 a barrel. Copper is down 2.5% at $395.30 a pound. Spot gold down six tenths of 1% at $1,811.04 an ounce. The U.S. 10-year bond currently showing a yield of 3.94%. Added to currencies, uh, the euro buying a dollar and five cents. The U.S. dollar standing at 136.45 Japanese yen. Uh, the pound buying 9.38 Hong Kong dollars this morning. Uh, the yuan standing at 6.96 against the U.S. dollar, and Bitcoin currently at 23,502 U.S. dollars. Just looking at the S&P ASX 200, uh, currently down 1.3% at 7,000. 207. And looking to the opening of the Hong Kong market, uh, Hang Seng Futures uh, looking like the market will open maybe 1.2% down. Time for us to say a very good morning to our guests. And first of all, Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Capital. Uh, good morning, Andrew. Good morning. And good morning to Lashar, Chief Asia Economist from BBVA Research. Good morning, Lashar. Good morning. Nice to have you on the show as ever. And I guess um, let's pick up from uh, where the markets in the US left off on Friday. What was your reaction uh, to the markets on Friday? Lashar, perhaps first. Uh, yes, I think that from the micro side, uh, people worry about this uh, inflation coming back. Uh, at the beginning of the February, people think maybe the uh, Fed will stop hiking interest rate in March. But now people expect that this kind of uh, interest hike will continue uh, in the first half of the year. Uh, I, and there's uh, some risk they will continue even in the second half of the year. So I think there's a very uh, normal reaction uh, to, to this kind of uh, bad news about inflation. But frankly, uh, what happened is quite in line with uh, what I know about the inflation because the inflation is always persistent, always difficult to, to be defeated by, uh, compared to this, uh, uh, this GDP compared to other, uh, economic activity uh, indicators. Uh, so that means, uh, uh, through the course of the uh, through the course of the year, I think people need to pay attention to this inflation news. They will be up and downs, and then the market will react uh, different ways. Uh, but generally, I think uh, it's not easy. It's uh, uh, it's too early to declare the the victory against the inflation. 
Andrew, um, yeah, it only seems a couple of weeks ago that we were thinking that uh, inflation was under control. What are your thoughts? No, I think so. And I think the Fed is very keen to show that it, it, it's going to be aggressive in trying to control inflation. Because what it really doesn't want is people to start feeling that they need to ask for further wage rises to cope with inflation, uh, because then it will spiral upwards. So they're trying to be very aggressive in the short term to bring it, you know, to within control, uh, as as Lajar is saying, it's difficult to to wipe it out again. But they certainly want to try and um, halt people's expectations of needing to maybe ask for you know, six, seven percent in wage rises. They'd prefer people to ask for a couple of percent and try and bring inflation down, uh, because otherwise it spirals upwards. So Cleveland Fed President Loretta Master said the uh, Fed should raise interest rates higher than necessary if need be to get uh, inflation fully under control. What is uh, higher than necessary, do you think? Well, they have a set rate that they're kind of, you know, the market's been thinking that, you know, five, five and a half percent might be the sort of level that interest rates need to go to. Um, but there is always that problem that with a very tight labour market um, and wages continuing to rise, that the, F- the Fed needs to take it higher in order to control those expectations. Yes, mm. on this point, if you look at uh, the real interest rate, now it's still negative, mm. right? So if you think uh, the inflation, they will continue to slow down in the next uh, couple of months, uh, maybe they will inflation slow down to five, and then we raise interest rate to 5.5, and then you have a positive real interest rate. You can think that's necessary. But if inflation continues to stay at the sixth level, okay, so that means even we raise to 5.5, we still suffer this uh, negative interest rate problem. Yeah. What about the bond rally? It seems to have fizzled out, guys, doesn't it? It uh, um, was going, quote, unquote, great guns at the beginning of the year. Um, but, Lashar, things not looking quite as rosy in the bond market now. Yeah, I think the same story with the inflation mm. because the bond market is most sensitive to these uh, interest rate hikes. Uh, now, people, since people believe that this interest rate hike was longer than initially expected, then this uh, bond rally <laughs> disappeared. And I think the key thing here is that you know a lot of companies are are being cautious about raising money uh, and cautious cautious about how they're spending their money. And we're certainly starting to see companies uh, you know pull back from doing share buybacks um, as they realise that you know the, the the cost of money is is now going to be something that's important to the company business. So um, Warren Buffett, though, not um, not pulling back from his comments and uh, and confidence in the U.S. Uh, economy, uh, signalling he's not n- lost none of that uh, that confidence over the weekend in a letter to shareholders. Uh, he always seems to be buoyant about things, despite everything, doesn't he, Andrew? Well, I think he takes a long-term view, so he doesn't allow himself to be sort of caught up in the trees, uh, but he's looking at, you know, the whole of the forest. And I think that's probably right. I mean, you've still got the US economy in, in very good shape. You know, it's, you know, you've got very low unemployment, which is always a good indicator. Um, and, you know, a lot of these companies are doing well and have, have shown that they can do well even in the last quarter as interest rates started to rise significantly. Um, going forward, it's going to be, a lot of it is going to be about getting that balance between consumer confidence and inflation concerns. Lashar, are you a fan of Warren Buffett? Uh, yes, I think uh, uh, at least uh, he he has been very consistent 
on this view. He's always bullish on United mm. States. I, I to some degree, I, I really agree with him because from long term, you can see that this economy is still in the lead in the world, right? So yeah, that he he make a lot of money from his uh, from confidence in United States. I think uh, he will continue. Hmm. And he also focuses on, um, on, on businesses that he understands, uh, and that, I think, is probably important. And he's, he's always driven by cash flow. Now, China's manufacturing data uh, is coming out this week. Um, what do we think? What do we expect? Uh, are we feeling positive, optimistic about that, uh, Andrew? Well, I think we'll start, you know, continue to see improvements, obviously, um, we had the, uh, the the pivot on COVID. That won't have taken full effect yet, but we should see some indications uh, of improvement. And I think the expectation is certainly, having uh, now reversed that policy, that certainly in the next quarter we should see a significant improvement. Lucian? Yes, I, I, I agree with Andrew on this one, because uh, if you look at the January, because the January China still... Uh, was affected by this uh, COVID problem, okay? And they have the Chinese New Year holidays. Uh, so that's why at the beginning of the February, when we see the January data, it's, uh, it's, it's good, but uh, not as good as many people anticipated. But the economy start to accelerate in February. We have collected uh, this uh, big data, high-frequency data, and we know this uh, credit data start to expand quite a lot in uh, in February and January. So I'm sure that uh, this uh, kind of the uh, PMI data will be very good in, in February. Yeah, But the, the problem is... Uh, over the medium term or long term, not for just one month, because we know these are February things is rebound from the previous low. Okay, uh, but we need to observe whether this kind of the recovery can continue through the year. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think more people are going to still be watching the housing market and the banks uh, as being key indicators. And of course, we we still haven't seen Evergrande's restructuring program. Um, and I think there are further concerns out there with a number of the other developers as well. Now, what about other areas of the mainland economy? Uh, for instance, uh, tourism. Uh, it, it seems that the um, the air airline industry has not uh, come back yet at all. Only about ten percent of uh, foreign flights uh, in process at the moment, and compared to pre-pandemic levels, uh, are we going to see a big uh, growth in tourism? Do you think over the next few months, or is it going to be some time yet, Lashar? Uh, I think it is some time to uh, to recover in this sector because so I I know the news that uh, United States and China they have some agreement uh, to try to they try to reach some agreement uh, uh, to open more flight route but unfortunately uh, it failed I think that it's not only involved on this. Uh, Demand and supply that also involve a lot of the political or geopolitical problem there. So that's why I think this take time uh, for Chinese uh, uh, tourist sector to recover. Uh, but domestically, you can see that this kind of tourist uh, uh, sectors uh, start to re- rebound very quickly. And uh, during the Chinese uh, uh, holidays, you can see many people waiting in lines <laughs> in some resorts. Uh, but I think the for overall, for this uh, uh, inbound or outbound uh, tourism, I think uh, it needs time to, to recover.
Andrew, do you think that uh, tourism is coming back? We see um, that Macau today is dropping its uh, mask mandate, um, hoping to boost its uh, its tourism and uh, gaming industry. Your thoughts? Well, I think Macau's already seen a, a significant improvement. That now that people can travel you know, freely across the border, they are doing so. Um, and I think you know the same will be true for Hong Kong. It'll you know we need to you know. To get rid of the masks here in Hong Kong if we want to attract tourists. But also, I mean, the airline industry is suffering from having lost workers trying to get them back. So we have a huge um, lack of skills. And for the airline industry itself, you've got to bring aircraft back into service. You've got to service them. You've got to crew them. You've got to get your pilots back onto current flying hours and the rest of it. And all of that will take a lot of time. Now, China being fairly critical of Western policy over Ukraine at the moment. Um, you know, we've just passed the first uh, anniversary of the Ukraine war. That's still having quite a big effect uh, right across the economies of Europe uh, around the world in, in lots of different areas, Andrew, isn't it? Yes, I mean, you've still got, obviously, you know, some sanctions. You've, you've got uh, concerns, I think. I think the con- biggest concern is a more about policy changes. And, and Xi has shown that, you know, policy switches can come very quickly. So we saw, you know, last year Macau, we saw education, we saw e-commerce. And I think for a lot of people, that's making them uh, reconsider the risk profile that China really has, as opposed to, you know, maybe, you know, going back to the US. I mean, if, if policy changes in the US, it usually takes months, if not years, whereas Xi has shown that policy can change overnight in China. And I think for a lot of institutional uh, international investors, that's a concern. The Shah, Ukraine and the continuing war uh, with Russia, is that going to have a, a big impact in your eyes? Uh, I have to say this kind of uh, impact start to uh, diminish, mm. okay? Because the people tend to adapt to this new normal. We know that there is a war in Europe between Russia and Ukraine, and we uh, manage to to adapt to this new normal. But unfortunately, as Andrew said, I think now the international investors, they tend to pay more attention to this uh, geopolitics risk right here in especially in Asia uh, in the past I think we uh, were more focused on whether this uh, project can make money whether this company is uh, profitable but now they need to uh, raise their awareness that whether this one could be sanctioned by other countries uh, so I personally I don't think that's not good uh, development because if people worry too much about this uh, geopolitics race uh, political race uh, they cannot focus on the the real things focus on the long-term things like uh, Warren Buffett right uh, so yeah I, I think the, the the policymakers around the world they must find a way to solve this uh, problem uh, not only for this uh, uh, Ukraine problem but also they must uh, find new ways that if they really care about the economic prosperities in the of the world they need to find a new way to solve all this problem Le Shah is uh, chief asia economist at bbva research thank you Le Shah. thank you to andrew sullivan as well managing director outset capital uh, still to come we'll have our new regular segment your money carolyn wright will be joined by financial education consultant david kneebone to address handling one of those important conversations in life when should you start teaching your kids about money and a bit later we'll take our regular view from china with ben cavender managing director at china market research group in beijing currently in the markets uh, the s p asx 200 uh, down 1.5 percent at 7199 uh, the nikkei 225 uh, now 
now down half a percent at 27,329. Uh, the cost be down at 1% at 2,394. Hang Seng Futures looking to a lower opening of about 1.2% uh, here in Hong Kong. Uh, let's look at the weather. Fine and dry, rather cool this morning. Uh, maximum temperatures about 20 degrees. Moderate to fresh easterly wind strong offshore. The outlook fine and dry in the next few days. The red fire danger warning is in force. The strong monsoon signal also in force. It's currently 15 Celsius, 63% uh, relative humidity. Now let's get the news from Tommy. The police believe they've found the head of a 28-year-old murder victim surnamed Choi two days after they discovered body parts from a woman in a fridge at a village house in Taipo. Officers say the head was found in a giant soup pot at the house, which was seized on Friday, along with some ribs, hair and human tissue. Work is ongoing to confirm they belong to the same person. And Superintendent Alan Chung says forensic experts believe they may have found the cause of death. Unfortunately, there's a hole on the right side rear on the skull. The, the pathologists believe that should be the, the fatal, fatal attack on the victim. It's the torso. We are still working on many, many uh, clues. Once we have any clue, we will do a thorough search again to find the torso and other parts of the missing body. Police announced yesterday they had charged two men aged 31 and 65 with the woman's murder. Another suspect aged 28 who was arrested in Tung Chung on Saturday has also been charged with her murder. They've also charged a woman aged 63 with perverting the course of justice. They will all appear at Kowloon City Magistrates Court later this morning. The police say a 47-year-old woman has also been arrested in connection with the case. Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank have set fire to Palestinian houses, shops and vehicles, killing one Palestinian man after two Israelis were earlier shot dead in the same place. The violence took place in the village of Huwara, just south of Nablus. This latest West Bank unrest comes shortly after a rare meeting between Israeli and Palestinian security chiefs in Jordan. The BBC's Yolanda Nell has more details. It's remarkable that after almost a decade without direct peace talks, the two sides said in a statement that they'd work towards a just and lasting peace, with anxieties high about an escalation in the Islamic holy month of Ramadan, which begins in late March. Israel made a commitment to stop discussing new settlement building for four months. In return, it's understood that the Palestinians will not take action against Israel at the UN. No details were given about what would be done to prevent further violence. Nearly 60 people are known to have drowned after a boat carrying migrants sank off the coast of southern Italy. Officials said at least 12 were children, including a baby and young twins. 80 people survived, but it's not clear how many people were on the vessel when it broke up in rough seas. Those on the boat included people from Afghanistan, Pakistan and Somalia. The governor of Calabria region, Roberto Ocuto, after visiting the site, told reporters his region needed help from the rest of Europe. It's a day of grief for Calabria. This is a struggle that falls into a general indifference. Calabria is a region that welcomes people. Last year we welcomed 18,000 migrants, but we can't be abandoned by Europe. This type of tragedy should have been avoided the day before it happened and not lived out how we're living it today and how we'll live it again tomorrow. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, is to meet the UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, in Britain later today. A joint statement said they would work towards finding a solution to the dispute on post-Brexit trading arrangements for Northern Ireland. The BBC's Jessica Parker is in Brussels. 
the fact that Ursula von der Leyen, who is the EU chief here, head of the European Commission, the EU's executive arm, is heading to the UK tomorrow, very much suggests that a deal is now in the offing, as we've been expecting. It was always the plan, I'd heard in recent weeks, that once they got to a point that they could sign off on a deal, Ursula von der Leyen would go to London or somewhere in the UK to meet with Rishi Sunak, and that would be the moment. India's federal police have arrested the deputy chief minister of Delhi for alleged corruption. The arrest of Manish Sisodia is in connection with irregularities in the implementation of a liquor policy in the city. Mr. Sisodia and his Am Admi party, which emerged from an anti-corruption movement, denied the allegations. The BBC's Naresh Kaushik reports. The BJP and the agencies say they have evidence Mr. Sisodia has been involved in corruption as the minister in charge of bringing a new liquor policy for Delhi in 2021. Under the policy, hundreds of new alcohol shops were opened in the city, which were allowed to serve customers until 3 a.m. But Mr. Sisodia later abandoned the policy after police began investigating allegations of irregularities, including the payment of bribes. Police in Sri Lanka's capital, Colombo, have fired tear gas to disperse thousands of protesters demonstrating against the government's decision to postpone local elections. The polls were scheduled to take place next month, but the government said it couldn't pay for them because of the ongoing financial crisis. The news from RTHK. Thanks, Tommy. Well, good morning. This is James Ross with a newly extended Money Talk through until 9 o'clock. And we continue, and in a few minutes, we'll have our new regular segment, Your Money. And Carolyn Wright will be joined by financial education consultant David Kneebone uh, to address handling one of those important conversations in life. When should you start teaching your kids about money? And in about 15 minutes, we'll take our view from China with Ben Cavender, Managing Director at China Market Research Group in Beijing. In the headlines, Wall Street saw its biggest weekly drop this year after sharp losses on Friday. That as investors brace for more rate hikes from the Fed as new U.S. economic data fed fears that inflation is not yet under control. At the same time, the record-breaking global bond market rally since the start of this year seems to have fizzled out. Warren Buffett says he's lost none of his enduring confidence in the U.S. economy and his company Berkshire Hathaway. Elsewhere, the EU has agreed to impose new sanctions on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. China Renaissance Holdings has now confirmed that its missing chairman, Bao Fan, is assisting Chinese investigators. And starting today in Macau, masks will no longer be required outdoors, likely a big boost to its tourism and gaming industry. Streaming giant Netflix has cut prices in more than 30 countries as it attempts to attract more subscribers. It comes as the rising cost of living sees households tightening their belts and Netflix faces increased competition from rival services. And officials have continued their push to cement Hong Kong's status as a global financial centre and an attractive place to do business in the wake of last week's budget. The financial services minister has said it will soon be easier for cutting-edge technology companies to list here, even if they don't make any money. Meanwhile, the financial secretary has been talking up the SAR's status as a hub for green finance. The Financial Services Minister Christopher Ho said that high-tech firms would soon be allowed to list in Hong Kong before they generate revenue or reach profitability. 
The minister told a commercial radio program that the stock exchange is rolling out a new arrangement next month to make that happen, easing profitability requirements. He says authorities hope the change will attract firms in industries such as new energy. Companies listing in Hong Kong usually have to report a profit of $35 million for the previous year and $45 million in aggregate for the preceding two years, or meet requirements on market capitalization and revenue. Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing launched a consultation last year on easing most of those requirements to attract specialist technology companies in certain sectors. Mr Ho said the government was also helping international private equity funds enter the mainland market by negotiating with authorities in Shenzhen's Shanghai Economic Zone. The minister says 600 such funds have been registered in the SAL in the past couple of years, and those organisations would bolster demand for professional services here. A lot of legal support and accounting support is needed in the process. So when they set up such entities in Hong Kong, they use a range of our financial and professional services. And secondly, they can invest in the tech firms on the mainland. Those enterprises may be listed in future. Meanwhile, the financial secretary Paul Chen has talked up Hong Kong's advantages as a hub for green technology and financing, saying the SAL has an abundance of green tech startups. The finance chief unveiled a raft of measures in his budget on Wednesday to promote a green economy, including expanding an existing green bond scheme to cover sustainable finance projects. Writing on his official blog yesterday, Mr Chen pledged more support for green tech companies when it comes to financing and business management to lure talented people and investors here. Violet Wong reporting there. Well, the newly extended Money Talk allows us a bit more time to delve into the financial problems we all face, as well as trying to answer some of the burning questions you may have about making the most of your money. This morning, Carolyn Wright helps us with a topic you might not have thought about too much, but is absolutely vital to consider if you have a family. Good morning. Today, I'll be taking a closer look at personal finances and how you can help your family. What better place to start at than with your kids? Parents often have a dilemma as to when the best time is to have important chats with their children. And my guest today says finance needs to be one of them. I'm joined by David Kneebone, who's a financial education consultant. He was formerly based in Hong Kong, working with the IFEC here. So, David, what would you say the uh, best time is to start talking finance with your kids? Good morning, Carolyn. Thanks for having me on. I would say the best age to start talking to your kids about money is as early as possible. And there's a couple of reasons for that. We found via research that the earlier you talk to your, your kids about money and begin the conversation with them, the more chance there is of forming great habits that hopefully will carry out throughout their life course. So there's a fair bit of research that shows if you can affect the habits of a child before seven years of age, um, you're onto a really good thing for, for a number of subjects. For money specifically, it does make a substantial difference. So you'll find a number of financial education programs are now targeting children between three and seven. Wow, I I feel that's kind of younger than I'd ever imagined is, is, is three. Just thinking from my own perspective, like the first thing I remember is being given 
pocket money. Is is that the kind of place you would start at maybe or would you teach them first before even going near the idea of giving them money to actually play with? Yeah, and I think we know a, a three-year-old can only absorb so much and there's uh, very different to a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. So the, the most important thing early on is for a child to understand the difference between needs and wants. Mm-hmm. And understanding and appreciating that and then carrying that information throughout their latter years, particularly when they get to the teenage years, is really significant. So if, for example, we had some children in Hong Kong that maybe had lysine, Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Over Chinese New Year, absolutely. And let's just say, let's just say that a child had a thousand Hong Kong dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, helping them appreciate at that point what they could do with that money, not just now but for the future, is a really, really important lesson. And if you don't need all of it, and you don't want to save all of it, or you make a choice not to, could you give some of it to others that maybe have less than you? Also another important thing to note. So at the earlier age, just understanding that you can't have everything now. You've got certain needs. The sum I'm going to provide for you as your parent, the sum you maybe need to save for yourself, the quicker we can get that key lesson um, appreciated by a child, the better it is for them when they start getting to the point when they're earning more pocket money, having a part-time job, getting more substantial sums from their grandparents, from their aunties, from various other opportunities around them, you could say. <laughs> so it sounds like it's it's almost introducing the concept of, of budgeting to, to, you know, a, a certain degree there that you're saying, all right, well, maybe you want to allocate some of your money to things you would like to have now. And then you could consider saving up for something a bit longer term. And you could then also consider how, you know, sharing maybe whether you want to give something to charity or whether you maybe want to buy a present for your friend's birthday or something like that. Absolutely. I suppose to a a degree it's budgeting in its most basic form. But for a younger child, appreciating the difference between what you need and what you want is really, really important. So another core topic to introduce for younger children in that age group, three until seven, Mm -hmm. is where does money come from? For example, it's not uncommon for many kids to use the MTR or buses on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So how does the money get onto your octopus card? Um, It's it's usually because mum and dad have to work. And understanding what work means and understanding that mum and dad earn money and that we're giving you some of that money, but if we don't work, we don't have money, is also a really important point for a child to appreciate, and it helps them understand the value of the effort that's being put in around them. Right, yeah, so obviously mum and dad have to work very hard for, for the money they get, and things all you know might not always be the same, that sometimes will be better than other times. Yes, and as we know, Hong Kong parents work usually incredibly long hours and they work very hard. And the pressure on Hong Kong parents um, can be that they're not just supporting their children, but also supporting their parents and their grandparents. And there's sometimes a domestic worker also living in the house. A key point around helping a child understand money and the value of money is all those people 
saying and acting in the same way around money. And that's a really tricky thing yeah. to try and achieve. But the open, the more open we are with our conversations around money from an early, early age, the easier it is for anyone as they grow through their teenage years and into adulthood to appreciate the basics and then act on them regarding all the different money management decisions that we've all got to make. Yeah, and we all have a lot of decisions to be making. Now, I would imagine that for kids, one of the most difficult things is, you know, maybe they've gone past a toy shop and I don't know, there's a really cool toy that's available from the latest film they've seen and they're, they're super excited and they really, really want it. But they've already talked to their parents about how they actually want to save up for something that they still haven't got enough money towards. Is, is that something that, you know, could be used as a good way of, of helping kids understand this longer term planning? Absolutely. And one, having the conversation with them, not just shutting it down and saying no, but having the conversation with them and understanding you've got to prioritise even the things you want is really significant. And the more you do it, the more that a child will understand. What's also important, because they mimic your behaviour, especially mm -hmm. younger children, is that you also display, ideally, the same habits and conversations. So, so, you... so they listen, of course. Yes. They, they listen. They listen to their parents. They listen to domestic workers. They listen to their grandparents. They listen to all the people around them. And consistency around that point in, in the home is really, really significant. Now, of course, the home is just one of the places Absolutely. that kids learn about money, but it's probably the most important one, particularly for a young child who models all of their behaviour on those that are older around them. Yes. Now, interestingly, you were saying there that obviously at home is the most important. But do you, do you think it's worthwhile trying to get um, schools more involved? Should parents consider suggesting to schools that they set up some kind of uh, school banking or any kind of projects along those lines? Yes, financial education is not mandatory in the Hong Kong school curriculum. Um, many schools do offer programs. The message I would give to parents is to please ask what's available in your school. And if there isn't anything available in your children's school, obviously, if there isn't anything available, then encourage your school to look for some of the programs that do exist. The Investor and Financial Education Council is a good place to start. Yeah. It can facilitate a number of different options, but it's one of several sources that offer um, financial education to children. Uh, it's incredibly important. And frankly, when you look at the way some other developed economies are offering financial education, Portugal and the United Kingdom are two very good examples. You can see that as time goes on with this reasonably new subject, we've only really been talking about financial education for the last 20 years only, compared to, you know, which is short compared to other subjects. Yeah. It's obvious that unless we help our kids appreciate some basic concepts as early as possible, we're never going to see the generational change that we're all looking for in terms of adults beginning to display more mature evidence-based decisions in regards to basic money management. 
And we all know it can be very hard and it gets harder and harder as time goes on for for kids to be able to kind of get themselves those first rungs on the, the ladder. You know, even, obviously, when they're getting a little bit older, considering to, to buy their own first property or anything like that, you know, it's it's very, very difficult. So instilling that education at an early age seems like the best way forward to give them the, the, the best sort of grounding for the future. Absolutely. So do have open conversations at home and consistent conversations. And it's a tricky thing for some families because sometimes money isn't something that's ordinarily talked about a lot, but it's really important for a child to appreciate some of those basic concepts and encourage your school, your children's school, to adopt financial education through a variety of different sources. Um, Ideally, the more we talk about money as a community, the greater the financial literacy of not only our children, but ultimately those uh, teenagers and, and working adults and then the elderly will become. We can all we can all learn from good practices, which I think is a, an absolutely brilliant way to end the conversation for today. Thank you so much for joining me today, David. You're welcome. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks a lot. I will be back on Money Talk tomorrow. Look forward to it. Carolyn Wright uh, was talking there to uh, financial education consultant uh, David Kneebone. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Michael Teen, Roundtable Legislator. I want to congratulate RTHK on its uh, 95th birthday. And I've always been a fan of RTHK. I think over the years they've done a very good job balancing the needs of citizens to have transparency and factual news. So I congratulate them and I believe that they will continue to do the same. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Very good morning to you. It is uh, eight minutes to nine on the extended, newly extended Money Talk. Uh, back chat will be coming up at nine o'clock with Jim Gold and Mike Rouse. Uh, we turn now to our view from China. And I'm pleased to be joined on the line by Ben Cavender, uh, Managing Director of China Market Research in Beijing. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, as ever. Uh, lots going on in China. The official manufacturing data for uh, February coming out on Wednesday. Uh, we were talking a little bit about it earlier on the show. What are you feeling about um, optimism in that sector at the moment? Are you, are you feeling uh, good about it? Is, is it going to show some good results, do you think? Uh, you know, I think we'll be looking at results that are maybe... Uh okay and you know coming coming in close to estimates but i don't think anybody right now is no anybody any anybody's uh being optimistic about it do, do you mean oh, i think we might have lost um ben uh we'll see whether we can uh, get him back again uh, ben cavender are you there at the moment um no maybe maybe he's not there at the moment uh let's see whether uh we can get him back on the line uh meantime uh let's just take a break for just a second and um we'll be back with you in just one second last time on the drive oh here's one a study finds that hand gels oh 
over the last three years. Hand gels, man. Hand gels alone probably won't curb infections. Uh, you may also have to stop licking the handrails on the MTR. The Steve James Afternoon Drive. 2 till 5, weekdays. As the working day draws to an end, join me, Simon Wilson, and let's kick back and enjoy a sundowner and unwind together. Play a few tunes and crack a joke or two. Monday to Friday, 6.30 to 9. Sunset Sounds here on Radio 3. Saturday Yamcha. Join us for a chat. Talking exercise. Today's topic is all about exercise. You have to find a sense of balance and harmony in your day-to-day life. I'm so happy, you know, really wishing you, sending you all the good energy. Always an interesting guest. Hello, hello, Louisa. Good Lovely morning. to hear your voice. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Louisa. Zhao <laughs> This weekend. How is it so far with the, the region and the world and Hong Kong opening up? Hong Kong opening up is, uh, is a super good news. <gasps> it's a big deal, right? For- it's a huge deal. Saturday Yamcha. With me, Louisa Tam. 9 till 12. On Radio 3. Do you want to stay vigilant against unexpected documents launched for registration against your property? If you do, the Land Registry's Property Alert Service can serve you well. Property owners subscribing to the service will receive an email alert when any document is launched for registration against their property. It can put your mind at ease on your valuable property. Visit landreg.gov.hk for subscription details. Any additions or alterations made to buildings without the prior approval of the building's department or irregularities of building works associated with subdivision of flats may be regarded as unauthorized building works. All such works are subject to enforcement action. For safety's sake, owners and occupants are strongly advised to consult building professionals before carrying out such works. For more information, please visit Buildings Department's website at www.bd.gov.hk. Well, a little, a little earlier on, we were talking to Ben Cavender, but we seem to have uh, lost him for the time being. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the uh, Russia and Ukraine situation. Last week, China issued a 12-point peace proposal to Russia and Ukraine, calling for a ceasefire and the opening of peace talks as part of the plan to put an end to the conflict. Uh, earlier on on Hong Kong Today, Vicky Wong asked our U.S. economics correspondent, Barry Wood, how U.S. President Joe Biden reacted to the proposal, as well as getting his thoughts on why Wall Street had had such a bad close to last week. He's rejected it, and his people are rejecting it, and the Europeans are rejecting it. They're saying that the only positive thing in this 12-point plan is that um, they mention that um, there should be a ceasefire and that that Russia invaded Ukraine. But somehow, this business of unilateral sanctions can't solve the problem. That's what the Chinese statement says in this 12-point plan. Unilateral sanctions can't solve the problem. Well, the Americans and the Europeans have been laying on heavy sanctions since the beginning of 2022 when this war began in February, and they tightened them. So there's a fundamental disagreement. I think the significant thing is, Vicky, that the Ukrainian leader says he'd like to talk to the Chinese leader. That's a sign that maybe there's some movement. 
I think the uh, Chinese have to be applauded for at least putting forward some ideas. Now let's turn to the markets. Uh, stocks last week closed out their worst week since early December. Were they reacting to the latest inflation data, which came in higher than expected? Well, I suppose they were, Vicky, but I think the reality is we had a nice rally in January. Everyone thought, well, the Fed is nearly done raising interest rates. Now the sentiment is shifted to say, oh, my goodness, we're going to get another 25 basis point increase in March and maybe one more after that. And so that has tempered sentiment. I think you're right. There is something about the inflation figures, but the inflation trend is downward. The interest rate trend is still upward. And uh, just briefly, what do you expect from earnings reports from major retailers this week? They could be mixed. They could be good. I don't think they're going to be bad. The reality is that the economy is doing far better than expected. But the big companies, that includes Walmart, Lowe's, um, Home Depot, they've all been saying that the rest of the year, after the first quarter of this year, looks less rosy. So I think that um, probably the earnings this week should be good. We might see a bounce back in the market because we had kind of heavy sell-off. The dollar has been very strong. But um, there's a bit of pessimism that's setting in towards events in the last part of this year. Barry Wood, uh, RTHK's international economics correspondent, talking to Vicky Wong a little earlier on. Just look at the, those numbers from the U.S. The Dow down 1% at 32,817. The S&P uh, 500 down 1% at 3,970. And the Nasdaq down 1.7% at 11,395. Uh, Hong Kong was down 1.7% on Friday at 20,010. Let's just have a quick look uh, around the markets at the moment. So the S&P 500... Or, sorry, the S&P ASX 200, rather, is currently down 1.5% at 7,199. The Nikkei 225 is down half a percent at 27,308. The Cosby down 1.4% at 2,390. Hang Seng futures looking like an opening around 1.2% down. Well, on tomorrow's uh, Money Talk, Andrew Work will be joined by Alex Wong of Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management and Patrick Bennett of CIBC World Markets Plus, Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesek with a view from Japan. That's it from Money Talk from James Ross for this morning. Uh, Jim Gould and Mike Rouse are up shortly with Backchat. That's right off the news with Tommy.